saved. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us life, an abundant life. Lord, right now, we would ask that you'd prepare our hearts to receive your word. Lord, prepare us to say yes to the, to the commission that you give us today. Prepare us, Lord, to push away the influences from the outside so that we might focus on what your Holy Spirit desires to say to us, the church today. Lord, we love you, and we just commit this time into your hands, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And you can take your seats. If you could bring the word cloud, word cloud out, you'd be able to see what I take to the beach. I want to encourage people to not be ashamed of who we are. We are a Bible-believing church. We're gospel-driven. And uh, when you realize that uh, those things are so important to us, that, uh, that it permeates the rest. Uh, because we know God... And we are able to study the Bible. Worship becomes so very important to us. Uh, now, if you'll also, uh, since, since we're not ashamed of the doctrines of grace, we're reformed. We're a regional church trying to reach people that uh, not only that, that are in Lewis and maybe Rehoboth and maybe Milton, but we'd like to be able to reach folks from all around. And that's why the, uh, the, that region aspect, we call it Coastal Sussex. So if you're in our region today or if you're turning, tuning in, uh, we'd like to be able to welcome you as we come into the presence of the living God to worship. If you open your Bibles, we're going to look now reverently and publicly. Uh, we're going to look and, uh, and listen to the Word of God as it is proclaimed. We believe that the, it is inerrant, infallible, and inspired in its originals. And therefore, as the Word of God is opened, we do want to pay attention and take heed to it. Uh, the scripture tells us our main text is from Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. Uh, it is uh, right at the tail end at the end of the book of Genesis. If you're looking in your pew Bibles, you'll be able to see that it is found on page 55 and 56. Uh, this is God's word. As for you, you meant it, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I want to read that again. I'd like it to sink in for you, but if you're, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, we are at the end of the 50 chapters. We're basically wrapping it up. If you were Moses, you're, you're now in that, uh, you're kind of writing your farewell. Uh, this is maybe the first book that's ever been written. Moses, I mean, we don't really know in culture if anybody ever wrote before this uh, with a written language, but we know that God taught and showed him Hebrew, and we even know in chapter 20 of, of Exodus that God actually wrote Hebrew with his own finger. But Genesis is the first book. Moses was not there. Moses did not get to interview Joseph. Moses did not get to spend time with Abraham. Uh, he didn't get even to interview with Adam. All of these things had to be given to him by divine revelation or they were passed on as, as the Holy Spirit secured it so that these things were validated. Now, when you get to the book of chapter 50 in the book of Genesis, uh, we've already been introduced to four key events and four key people. Genesis chapter 1 through 11 talk about the events of creation, the fall. Then you have, uh, you have uh, creation, fall. Then you have... The Flood, and then you have the Tower of Babel. Okay, you have all of this stuff going on. Uh, so in the book of Genesis, you, Moses reveals these things, these four massive events. Creation was by far the most exciting, but only God was there, and that's why I believe that the revelation about creation is exactly the way God gave it to Moses. 
Now, then you have the fall, which was critical. All of us are affected by the fall. And then hence you see the consequences of the fall when people tried to build the Tower of Babel and, and be God-like without God, uh, or the flood when God actually said, enough! Now, once you've got that down, then you get four key people. So if you're following along from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, we talk about some of the patriarchs. Patri means father, and so the, uh, the, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, when we're at the end here, we're focusing mostly on Joseph. And uh, in chapter 50, we find that Joseph is saying goodbye to his dad. His dad's about to die at the beginning of the text. There's a lot of weeping that goes on. And then when you finally get to our text in verse 20, uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Joseph is, is now the new patriarch, so to speak. Uh, he is having to look at things a little differently. His dad has just died and the brothers are there. All 12 of them are, are around. And, uh, and he looks at his brothers and this is what Moses records for us as, he, as he's wrapping up the book of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That is the text that we've been looking at. And this is the one I want to expose for you today. So, uh, Lord willing, we will do so. If you have your fourth point, you'll also see there's some supporting texts. And I wanted to read them publicly for you today. And then we'll be able to, to weave them in as you'll be able to see. I wanted to, to, to do Genesis chapter 1, verse 25. This is where God helps us to see how he set things up. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind hope you got the point. It's according to its design, according to the kind that God had put it in. And then it says, and God saw that it was good. It was good. Now, if you look at the next text, I want to take you to Isaiah 55. This is this is um, before the fall of the, uh, the northern kingdom, and Isaiah was a preacher, a prophet. Uh, he has, ended up looking at his culture, the people there. They used to have more more passion for God. Now they've kind of lived almost what we would experience as a postmodern culture. The people were doing what was right in their own eyes. And when Isaiah heard this, uh, he ends up saying, oh, let's, let, let, stop, stop, stop. Look at what God says here in chapter 55, beginning verse 8. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but they water the earth and making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, so shall the Bible be that goes, uh, so, shall my, so, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in, in the thing that I sent it. The key word there is the things that I purpose. That's what God said. I also want to take you to Psalm 139. It's been one of the verses that's been in our bulletin for the month of August. This is part of our Bible school theme where, where uh, the author of the psalm says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is exactly what Isaiah was talking about when he said, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. Well, the psalmist says, your knowledge is too high for me. It's, it's, when I start thinking about that, that's, that's wow. 
Okay? In verse 7 he says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness can cover me and the light about me like night. But even in the darkness, it is not dark to you, O God. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inner parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them experienced. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And I hope that you realize in that psalm where he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. I want to also take you to the New Testament to a few passages to highlight God's design. Jesus answered in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Let it be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, this is when John the baptizer comes to Jesus, or Jesus comes to John, and John has just said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, he's looking, Jesus says, you need to do this. You need to baptize me or ordain me. And uh, it's interesting how Jesus said it to him, let it be so right now, for thus it is fitting and it fulfills all righteousness. Can you see that there's a plan in there? That Jesus was saying, we've got to submit to the Father's plan. If you go to Luke chapter 23, when Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then they arrayed him in splendor and, and they sent him back to Pilate. It's interesting that all of the details, and I don't want to take the time on it, but when you go to Golgotha and you see this, the Via Della Rosa, the Stations of the Cross, you're going to see that God ordained all of this. And it had to be this way. If I take you to Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not even a dot, will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Now, many of us may not really believe that God's word and will is going to be done, but he's telling us that every jot, every tittle, every, uh, every minutia thing is going to have to be accomplished. If you go to John chapter 17 when Jesus was praying before he went to Gethsemane, he said, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. If you understand, God gave Jesus a task. He came to die. Now, and, that, and, and Jesus said, I had to do everything, and now I, it's being accomplished. And in John chapter 19, when Jesus had received the wine, he said, uh, it is finished. What was finished? What was the it? What did actually get done? And this is where I wanted to, to take us in our text today. The sermon title is It. 
Hey, uh, I know that Stephen King wrote a book about that, and, and maybe, uh, maybe you guys know what's in that book. I don't know what's in that book, but I'm preaching today about the word it. It shows up in our text, and I want you to be able to see that again in Genesis 50, verse 20. But as for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about so that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So I begin by asking this question, what is it? Now, I didn't say you're it. You know, that what you might play and doing during a uh, game of tag or something. You're it. But what is it? It is the focus of the message today because the first point of the sermon, if you're taking notes or following along, is you meant it for evil. That's the first point. And the second part is going to be about, but God meant it for good. And the third thing I want to talk about our experiencing of it. We, we or I or you, you know, us, we have lived it. And so those are the three things I want to highlight today. By way of introduction, uh, we've kind of introduced the text that we're going to be exposing, but I wanted to, to, to summarize. We've been in this sermon series for the month of August, and I've been asking the question, it's been on the marquee out front, can you trust science? And I put a question mark on it. And then secondly, trust God with an exclamation point. I'm hoping that everybody that comes to worship understands the emphasis that we've been looking at this month in this series. There's a lot of voices that are going around telling us that we need to trust them. And sometimes they have PhDs, sometimes they have other letters that, that signify that they are important people, that they have at least gotten some education or they've accomplished this or they've gotten a certificate or whatever it is they have. They communicate with a measure of authority and they communicate as if we're supposed to listen and obey. And the concern in that is that whether they're scientists or theologians or whether they're government officials, be careful to whom you're listening. And that's why I wanted to challenge God's people. Make sure that you do trust God, especially over top of what others say. During Bible school, which was the theme that was a, the catalyst for this, uh, we were talking about dinosaurs. And we were asking the question to some of the kids, uh, you know, what do you know about dinosaurs? And I asked them some of the questions, you know, uh, how, how, how many years ago did we have dinosaurs on the ground? One of the kids was real quick and responded with a lot of pride, 65 million years ago. Well, that was the perfect setup. Because I asked them, I said, well, were you there? You know, and I started probing a little bit more, and eventually what comes out is that somebody told him, and he ended up reading that in some book, and some teacher who was quoting some scientist said that this is what the rocks are dated as. And the next thing you know is they're believing them, and I'm coming back and saying, but if that's true, then this isn't. And if this is true, then that isn't. Now, so we were questioning this issue about science. Uh, now, there's a lot of other things that I, I never want to go on record of saying that I'm against science. I'm telling you right now, I'm pretty fascinated with how accurate the meteorologists actually are when they're talking about this storm that's coming in. Having lived in Pensacola and uh, being the recipient of multiple named storms, even with numbers in the threes, I never had to go through a four. Three was pretty bad. That when they tell you about what's going on and how fast the wind speeds are and what the tide might come up with, it's very fascinating, all the different intricacies that they are trying to communicate. 
But even with all that, science is not able to do anything about it. They can ask questions. They can send drones in there. They can put those balls that spin around and they can tell you how fast maybe something is, is moving. But they can't stop it. They can't direct it. They're just looking at models and patterns of trying to say, well, if it does this with the wind going like this, it'll probably do this, and it might even slow down, and all these kind of things. Science is not God. Never be tricked into thinking that, that it is. And the danger with, scientists, with, with science is not really science, it's the scientists. Just like the danger with theology is not theology, it is the theologians. And what my point is, is that when human beings get involved in trying to interpret data and trying to come up with conclusions, then they permeate it with their own thoughts and with their own limits. And if you talk to a scientist who is an atheist, which most of them are, because in science they claim that there is no religion, there is no God. So everything that science puts out is usually going to be in the, in the, uh, under the guise that there is no God, there is no creation, and so everything has to have naturalistic causes and explanations. If you take God out of the equation, when are you ever going to be right? You have to be real careful on that. Just like with theologians, as I'm trying to show a parallel, uh, I have quite a few books on my shelves from theologians that I hope that you never open their books. Because some of the things that they say about God are wrong. Some of the deconstruction that they have, some of the, the things that they're trying to cast out. To, you know, one of the books that I have says that Moses didn't write the first five books. Well, once they start saying he didn't write the first five books, then who did? And if somebody else did, who's that? You know, they have this JEDP theory and, they, and the theologians go on. And before long, you basically have a book that you're saying, well... I don't have any confidence in it. And so if you go to most churches today, and I fear that I'm right, they don't even open the Bible. They just tell you stories. When we come to the Word of God today, I don't want you to be deceived into listening to other people. I want you to understand things from God's standpoint our text today is about Joseph as a patriarch, and it's wrapping up this whole idea about design. Uh, during Bible school, we were asking some of those good questions about where did dinosaurs come from, you know, how long were they roaming the earth? We asked about what happened to them, and then we also were trying to say, well, how, how did they reproduce and all that stuff, because Jurassic Park, the movie, had it all wrong. The, the scientists that they put in there, I mean, they had some cool special effects, but they didn't get any of it right. Okay, I can tell you straight up that uh, God created the dinosaurs on the fifth day and the sixth day. We learned the song in Bible school, but you can open up Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and you can see it repeated. Even the big animals that are on the land, all of them, and if he, and if he made the swimming dinosaurs, he did that on probably uh, on day, day four as well, or day five as well. Now, having said that, I wanted to answer some of these, the, the last one was about design. We didn't get to spend a lot of time on it, but when it said after its kind, what is a kind? I'm not talking about how you can be gentle and meek with somebody, but a kind, according to Scripture, it talks about kind of like a species, okay? That if you have a cat, that's a kind. If you have a dog, that's a kind. If you have a cow, yeah, that's a kind. And now, and, and the Scripture says that it reproduces after its own kind. And if you heard the text that I read today, he repeated it over and over and over. Why would God do that? So that you wouldn't be tricked by saying someday that 
people who have PhDs by their name would say, oh no, that monkeys are going to turn into people, that, that birds are going to turn into dinosaurs. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're actually contradicting what Scripture says about things reproducing after their own kind. I want to challenge you in this. What is a design? What is the kind? Uh, what is the, the purpose? In our text today, Joseph ends up bringing it out. He shows us that God has design. God has a plan. And that's what it is. So if you come back to our text today, Joseph is standing before his brothers. He's lived an interesting life, to say the least. And finally, his dad has just died. His brothers are no longer in the position of power. Joseph is. He's the vice pharaoh. And, and his brothers are now a little afraid because even though there's more of them, they, there's more soldiers on Joseph's side. He looks at his brothers and he says, you guys meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. First point. This, is, this has been tough on me to be able to think that uh, what is the it? It is the human agenda that people have. You meant it for evil. You had a plan that you put into place and you thought through it and you engaged it and you made it happen. And, and the Bible says, according to the, the right observation from the helicopter view of Joseph, he says, you guys, your plan was evil. The Hebrew word is pretty clear on this. It's anti-God. It's bad news. Now, this is so hard for me to digest. You are the brothers. The people that he's talking about are people that he knows. He knows them by name. He knows how old. He knows who's the firstborn. He knows all kind of detail about these people. And he still looks at them and he says, Why? You know, he's, he's communicating here that uh, you have a human agenda that you put into place. That was the it. Joseph is looking around at his brothers now, and they're he's saying, this is not a good scene, guys. And, and of course, I, I probably have to back it up and, and help explain it for some of you. Okay, so the way that the story goes real quick is that Joseph uh, was, uh, was one, he was in a big family, bigger than mine. He had 12 brothers, and there's some other sisters as well, but the focus is on the boys because they get the inheritance. So Joseph's dad was one of the patriarchs. Remember I told you Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? Well, Jacob is the one. Jacob had a twin brother, Esau, um, but Jacob was the one that got the blessing. And so the blessing was, you're going to have a difficult life, Jacob. Uh, Jacob falls in love with this pretty girl, Rachel. Rachel is, happens to be the one that is uh, Joseph's mom. Okay, and I wanted to let you know some of the inside story. But the story un 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 unfolds by uh, little, little uh, Jacob, uh, when he set out to establish his own family, he fell in love with this girl, and he went to the dad, and he said, I want to marry her, and he said, seven years, seven-year engagement. And if you get into it, that's a long engagement. Okay, when he finally gets married, he finds out that the dad switched the women, and uh, I'm not sure how that worked, um, but when he woke up in the morning, he said, you're Leah. And it wasn't Rachel. So he had to work another seven years in order to get, uh, to get hit the bride that he loved. So that was the scenario. Now, while he's married to these girls, uh, he, he was really hoping that he would have children. And uh, the way that it worked out is that they didn't have children quite the 
quite as, as he had hoped. And so uh, Leah ends up having some kids. And uh, then Rachel ends up finding and saying, well, you can sleep with my, my, my handmaiden. And the next thing you know, they're having kids and they're competing with who can have kids. And my goodness, they had a house full of kids. They had more than a quiverful. I think that's seven. They had a mess. Now, finally, Rachel is able to have a baby, and, and it's little Joseph. And so when all said and done, little Joe is growing up, and, and you see all these brothers around, guess who was the favored child? Joseph, because his mom was the prettiest. She wasn't the, the, the most Christ-like. In fact, she worshipped idols, bad news. But somehow or other, in God's providence, Joseph was favored. He got the coat of many colors. That's where the story comes from. And you can hear the story. Now, with all of that, um, that's the backdrop. Now, when Joseph actually does something, rather than just because he's related to somebody or he's in certain birth order that he had a certain mom, those things Joseph couldn't help. But Joseph actually could help on a few other things. Joseph ended up going around to his brothers and he told them, hey, God gave me a dream that you guys are all going to bow down to me one day. Now, any of you from a family, do you, how do you think that went over with the brothers? Okay, it, it didn't work real well. Now, and on top of that, since dad gave him that pretty coat and God, dad gave him some of the extra chores that were indoors instead of slave labor outdoors, you know how it feels when you have to go out and do all that work on the outside. Anyway, that's what was unfolding. And so uh, you end up, as, as Joe is getting to be a teenager and stuff, things haven't gotten much better. I mean, Joe is living the life, life of luxury. I mean, he doesn't have to do all the other things that the other brothers do because he's so favored. One day, dad sends him out to the other kids to deliver a message. He never came back. Joseph met his brothers. They were in a compromised situation. And in that setting, you find what it is. The agenda of the brothers was, we're going to cancel you. We're going to cut you off. We're going we're to change your identity. We're going to do everything we can to erase you. Whew. It almost feels like 2020. But instead of it being your own brothers today, it seems like social media, it seems like the culture around us is trying to erase us. If they don't want to hear what we have to say, they don't want to hear that God speaks to us, they don't want to hear anything that we are communicating about truth, they just think that it's, it's, it's arrogant, it's rude, it's, it's disadvantaging me. And if you can look at it right now, you know, it, in a sense, Joseph wasn't woke enough. For those of you that understand that terminology, he was on the outside of being cool and fitting in. And everybody was going to be negative to him except his dad. So Joseph comes out there. The brothers say, enough of you. We're sick of you. Uh, they want to put a cork in his mouth. They ended up putting him in a pit. Uh, they almost killed him, but one of the brothers had enough sense to say, uh, we shouldn't murder. So they ended up selling him to slavery. And so when you think about it, look at the acts of these brothers. You meant it. For evil. You wanted to get rid of me. It wasn't anything that I've really done. You just had an agenda to make your life better was to eliminate the voices that you didn't want to hear anymore. And so that's what they did. Now there was a little voice of reason. There was a little bit of grace that kept Joseph from dying. But my goodness, if you were Joseph, you left that morning in a prestigious path. And that night, you had no idea where you're going. You have no idea what the future holds. In a sense, your life is over. 
you know, back in those days, they didn't have cell phones to call home. You know, we didn't have the FBI to search out. You know, once he went away with this caravan, there was no telling where he would end up. Whether someone would sell him to somebody else and he would end up in Africa or something. He was in Africa. Now, having said this, Joseph, that you meant it for evil. This is what the text reveals to us, is that when we're walking through life, there's a lot of times that we don't understand what it is. It is the agenda of those that are around us. It is what life actually could be explained as. It's a series of events. It could be seen as experience or it could be seen as opportunity, but it is life. And Joseph's brothers, the people that were around him, looked at Joseph's life and they said, it's not worth it. It is not worth you staying around. Now, the interesting thing about that is Joseph is under inspiration of the Spirit is saying, that's evil. Now, that's the first point I want to drive home is that we ought to be aware that there are agendas that are going on in this world that are not of God and they are evil. That's one thing you need to take notice of. The second point of this sermon is, is the good news. It starts with the word but. It's part of that phrase that you see in there. It's that yes, they're bad and they did bad things and they had bad motives and they were evil. You know, there's no denying that they were bad. But then you have this conjunction, something that's good. There's a shift. And, and the, the text actually tells us, but you meant it, but God meant it for good. And that's where you start asking that question. Okay, what is it again? It is God's agenda now. It is God's, I, I want to call it his purpose, his, his, uh, his agenda, his will. It is God's, uh, his plan. And when you start to understand it, if I go to Isaiah, it would say his ways. God has this, this whole big, um, if you want to call it a, an orchestra, or an orchestration. And he's weaving it together like a tapestry. God has all of these things there. And Joseph in his older age, I would imagine he's in his 50s. And he's looking at it and he says, but God has it under control. And that is where I really would like you to just... Breathe in deep. I don't really think that many of us believe this. You see the cat catastrophe in, in, in uh, Afghanistan. You see people fleeing in cars out of Louisiana. You know, you see folks that are wearing their masks in their car when they're all by themselves. You, you see all these kind of things going on and saying... What is going on? You know, what is behind all of this? And, and, and we usually think that God must be on vacation, or we usually think that, that God is not noticing these things, or we think that God, uh, we buy into this false philosophy that said that God's a deist, that he just set it up like an alarm clock and goes away until it'll come back some other day. Don't believe that false narrative. Don't listen to those false theologians. But God meant it for good. The it here has to talk about Joseph's life. And when you, when you really have to stand in the helicopter or get in the helicopter view and look at it, Joseph's life is not what many of us would say, yeah, I want that life. I've already explained it to you. Oh, yeah, it sounds nice to have the prettiest coat in the house. Maybe it's nice to have the prettiest mom. But I'm telling you that the other things that come with the package deal wasn't so wonderful. You know, here Joseph gets mocked by his brothers. 
He doesn't get treated very well. His rights as a human being were already being squished. Then on top of that, you have this idea that his life was almost devalued to the point that he could have been left in a hole to die. And yet, because of one of his brothers being nice, they sold him into slavery. That's his big brother, the one that's supposed to protect him. Joseph is, in effect, to be forgotten. He doesn't realize that his dad is going to be deceived with the conspiracy theory that there must have been an animal that ate him. So as far as his dad's going to be, man, he's going to cry that his son was killed by an animal. How sad. But he doesn't know the true story. He, he was listening to fake news. And then on top of that, once Joseph gets out of, uh, of the circumference of the family, then it's almost like, well, what do I do now? I've got a job situation, so I'm going to take care of things at Mr. Potiphar's house. And apparently, Joseph was a good-looking dude. His mom was a good-looking mom. And uh, Joseph ends up getting the attention of Potiphar's wife. And she makes a pass on him, a move on him, or whatever you want to call it, a tryst. And the next thing you know, Joseph is now in a hot seat. What do I do? Well, Joseph didn't have to think about it very long because he knew God. And he said, I'm getting out of here. She hung on to him, took his coat. It's amazing with coats with him. Next thing you know, the, the fake news puts him in jeopardy. He, he stands before the court. He doesn't have any standing. And so guess what? They cast him into jail. What did Joe do? Next thing you know, after that suffering in the jail for a long time, uh, he, he, does, he makes the best of every situation. He's a blessing to everybody he's around. Uh, but, but then there's these two guys that were in the, in the leadership of the, I almost want to say the White House of Egypt. And they came down, the cupbearer and the baker, and they're stuck in prison too. They, they, there was some bad things going on, probably some bad press. And they're in there by God's design. Joseph gives them the interpretation of a dream. He says, one of you guys is going to get restored. The other guy is going to get decapitated. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. The guy that got restored into the, being the cupbearer for the, for the Pharaoh, he gets up there and Joseph had said to him, remember me. Well, of course, he wasn't remembered. So Joseph is just wasting away in the jail. Boy, what a valuable life he has. Now, when you're looking at it, this is all a part of it. God meant it for good. All the experiences, all of the circumstances, all of the opportunities, Joseph was getting those things, and they were not by accident. They were not by accident. They were by design. Wow. I didn't finish the rest of the story because Joseph does get remembered, there is finally some grace that's extended. And the Pharaoh has a troubling dream. And nobody can explain things. So the grace that was extended was the cupbearer who has access to the Pharaoh says, Hey, I know some guy that might be able to help you. And out of convenience, they reached out to him. And they had to give him a shave and make him at least presentable. I mean, Joe has kind of sunk, 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 sunk down. I don't think his own dad would have recognized him. Joseph finally is being lifted up. He's pulling out of the, the mire of the pit, and he's brought into the Pharaoh's house, and he answers these things. He speaks on behalf of God. He's like a light that shines. His bushel is not covering him. He just speaks up. This, I know the God who can handle this. And he explains the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, and, and all of a sudden, God gives him favor, which is so unlike his, the rest of his life. And he puts him in charge of being vice pharaoh and saving all the food. Now, it is under that 
that the brothers from Egypt, I mean, the, the brothers end up coming to Egypt to get food because during the seven years of trouble, during those seven years, everybody thought they were going to starve to death. It's like everybody's mutually miserable except Joseph. If you're hanging around Joseph now, he's blessed. He's got food in abundance and he'll even give it away to you for good price. He wasn't even going to gouge you. And it's so interesting that when you look at the it in that second phrase, but God meant it. There's even so much more here than just feeding people's stomachs. God was in the orchestration, and that's why I like the idea of a tapestry, where if you look at one side, all those strings just look like a royal mess. But if you flip it over, you can see the design. Here in, in chapter 50, Joseph flips it over for us and says, See, this is the design. In order to get God's people to Egypt, in order for them to be able to have Exodus chapter 20, which is coming in the next book that Moses is going to write, we have to get God's people into Egypt. And they're not going to be brought out of the house of bondage just because they went in there into the house of bondage because they said, oh, let's go into bondage. When you look at it, you can see that God had orchestrated Joseph to be put at the right place at the right time to give the right counsel to be able to be the spotlight for God. And with that favor, the whole world was positively affected. And even God's people, the descendants of Abraham, come to Egypt and they're given this land of Goshen. It is a beautiful story. And from that rest of the story, you get the picture of salvation. Because all of us end up being like the people in Egypt in slavery. Until God sends a deliverer like Moses to bring them out. He sent Jesus. And when we come out, it's through the Red Sea. That's the play on words. But we come under the blood of Christ. The blood is applied to the doorposts of our hearts, not just to merely to the houses. And then what God does with this new life that he's given us because we've been freed from the bondage of slavery. And now he gives us the word of God at Mount Sinai. It doesn't actually give us, take us to Mount Sinai. But he gives us the word of God that's preserved for us since Mount Sinai. And we have the word of God to live by. And now the, the life that we now live, the 40 years that, that are wandering in the wilderness, God provided for them. He gave them the cover. He gave them the light. He gave them shoes that didn't wear out. He gave them food every day. He gave them water from the rock. He took care of them, which is very much like Jesus told us when you pray, give us this day our daily bread. He, he was going to take care of his people. Now, all of that is understandable now, when we see the big picture, that they would have never gone to Egypt unless Joseph was there. Now, Joseph said, but God meant it for good. Now, if you have your text there, you can see that it was to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now, it's kind of, if I, if I want to give you a little bit higher elevation than what he just said, is that who was kept alive? Now, you can say, well, it was God's people. But I want to be able to take you to a higher elevation because most of us don't see it except when you know the whole counsel of God. You're going to know that there's a scarlet cord or a scarlet thread that goes from Genesis all the way uh, through the book, through the Bible. And it tells us about this person named Jesus. He was going to be the second Adam. So that's uh, fixing what Adam broke in chapter 1 of Genesis. Now, in order for second Adam to come, he had to be a descendant, and he had to fall in line with, with the, the children of Shem, excuse me, Seth, and then it ends up coming through Noah. And then if you look through, it's coming through Abraham. And if Abraham's people would have all died because of the famine, then, there would, then nobody would be singing the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. You wouldn't be singing that if they all died because of the famine. 
And so it's fascinating how Moses is writing here and he says, hey everybody, God was preserving the seed that was going to end up being the one born of a woman who would save us from the curse of the law. He was preparing a people for which Jesus to be brought into and that was going to happen more than 2,000 years later. It's pretty amazing when you see how God was preserving some people. He was keeping them alive for a greater purpose. Now, Having explained all of that, the third point of this sermon, which is kind of like our application too, is I lived it. I lived it. Joseph, you've already heard from the, from the story. Uh, if you've been in Joseph's shoes, you've been canceled, you've been forgotten, you've been left out. But what about Joseph? How many of you know about Joseph's attitude? Do you remember when he was sneaky? Do you remember when he was mean? Do you remember when he lashed out with four-letter words in Hebrew? That's a joke. Do you remember anything that Joseph did by going through it? Let's see. Joseph, didn't he have a, a memoirs that, that told us about how it was so unfair? People were mistreating me. They forgot me. They left me out. Don't you know what Joseph's attitude was? We really don't know all of the details. I'm imagining that Joseph had some shortcomings. But he's one of the few people in Scripture that we don't learn a lot about bad attitudes. We don't find out him holding grudges. We don't, hold, we don't see him manipulating and maneuvering. We don't even see him being politically correct in his speech. He just seems to tell the truth. Joseph is now telling us the truth in chapter 50 as a guy that's lived, that, who's lived it. He says, hey, you need to pay attention to the things that you're in, to the it of your life. And do you see God's fingerprints on them? This week we had, and I'm, I'm driving around and I'm dealing with the issues of all the emotions. And I'm trying to figure if we are doing it right. Taking my one son down to down to Georgia, another one visiting my sister or my daughter in, in Virginia. You know, it's, it's like, what's going on? Our family is, 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 is like scattering. Are we doing it right? At the same time, I'm not there to be able to stand beside Marina when she, got, when she communicated the news of her husband dying this week. There's a couple other situations I couldn't be there for because I was there somewhere else. You can't, you can't do it all. Are we doing it right? When you go through the troubles and the pains of your life, how quick are you to be able to get to where Joseph is in chapter 50? God is working it together for good. The Apostle Paul wraps it up very well in Romans 8, 28, where he says that God is the author, I mean, where God ends up working all these things together for the good to them who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. It, when Moses finishes writing the book of Genesis, you have kind of this exhale. God really is in charge. And this world really has some problems. And some of the people that are going to hurt you the most, you're going to know their names. It's called betrayal. Jesus, by the way, was tempted in all points like we are, and yet without sin. The thing that we often don't get, though, 
is that God doesn't just say, you have to go through it. But God actually puts you in it so that you'll be equipped and prepared to do what he's put you here to do. Why are you here? Labor Day is next week. We'll have a Labor Day sermon, and I'll be asking you, what is the work that God's called you to do before he takes you home? Some of you are going to struggle to answer that question. Well, I'm supposed to eat, and I'm supposed to drink, and I'm supposed to be merry. Oh, oh no, that's what they're doing in Noah's day. Yes, I do want you to eat, and I do want you to drink, and I do want you to be happy and even a little bit jovial. That'd be wonderful. But God didn't put us here just to have a vacation. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you're going to find that we are his workmanship. We're his handiwork, created in Christ. Once we're in Christ, we're, we're committed to doing good works that God has before ordained that we should accomplish. There's things for you to accomplish while you're still breathing. Or as Brother Morris likes to say, while blood is still coursing through your veins. You're alive. You should be able to stand with Joseph and say, God, you mean it for good. Even when you go through the hardest times. I'm not telling you to ask for more hard times. That would be a misapplication. But when you understand the sovereignty of God and you understand that we have a good, good father, then I can tell you that when you're going through these difficulties like James chapter 1 says, which is, which is where the New Testament really starts with James writing. He says, brothers, count it all joy when you're in the midst of it. The persecution, separation, the abandonment. I mean, these people had to leave home. They had to flee to different parts of the country. And they had to be careful to watch out for the Romans. They even had to be caref careful to watch out for the, for the Pharisees and the preachers. You didn't want to get near, the, near Saul before he turned into Paul. Because he would put you in jail and he might even have it so that you could be put to death like Stephen was. Chapter 7 of Acts. All of that to say... Here we are in 2021. I feel like Henny Penny. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. The world's coming to an end. The government's collapsing. Democracy is gone. There's no more fairness. People are mad at each other. They can't even agree on, on, on whether they should take the vaccination or not. You can't even turn the channel without getting mad yourself. Most of you have turned off the channels. What is going on? Isaiah said it very well. That's why I put the text in there. God's word will not return void. God's plan, his purpose, his agenda is still being done. And in some ways, as I stood there with my son Christian at Impact 360 Institute and the, and the director of it, Jonathan Morrow, got up there and he says, he says, Christianity flourishes in every culture. And I perked up and I said, what? And he said, Corrie Ten Boom, she flourished in her culture, even though it was a mess. And then he went down and listed about six or seven Christians who flourished in the midst of despair. And the application was, we may be in one of those seasons of despair. Let your light so shine. Do you really believe in a sovereign God? Or is even your salvation dependent on your performance? Oh, if I don't keep working, if I don't go to church, if I don't put enough money in the offering box, if I don't go up to the front when they, well, over there, to the cross. No, it's over here today. If I don't go up after church or if I don't shake the preacher's hand before we go, if I don't do these things, oh no, I might not make it. Wrong. We are saved by grace 
through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone would ever be convinced that they helped God. For God says in, in Philippians 1.6, uh, Scripture clear, that he begins the work in you, he'll finish the work in you. And one of the ways that he's maturing the work in you is when you can get to the place where Joseph is standing there and say, God, I'm glad you're working this together for good because I'm not liking the experience of this. But then you'll finally find that he placed you at the right moment in the right time to speak the right thing. When you're there, you wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Joseph was able to show the love of God to his brothers, to these dudes that were awful. Some of you would think that he was insane for being nice to them. You know, why didn't he just take a diaper and rub it in their nose? I mean, he had the chance to make them feel like dirt. And he says, guys... God was even using your selfish behavior. God was even using your, your diabolical schemes. God was even overruling the manipulation that you did to dad when you tricked him about the blood on the coat. Our God didn't get thwarted by your mischievous activity. He worked it together for good. And I'm going to share that grace with you. And the brothers all moved to Egypt. They all had a wonderful place in the land of Goshen. I'm telling you, what a story of redemption. And that's where we all should be. We are living through difficult days. Uh, Peter, or Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. These are bad times. There are people who don't trust each other. They don't trust parents. Uh, there's all this kind of maneuvering and scheming. And I want to just finish with this thought. God is still in control. There is a God in Lewis. There is a God in coastal Sussex. There is a God in America, and we know him. And he's sovereign. Now, the cool thing is, what is he calling you to do? If you can't answer that, do some prayers this week. Do lots of praying this week. Come to the church when it's quiet here and talk to the Lord and, and seek his face and he'll show you. Proverbs 3, 6 says that if you trust in the Lord and not all the scientists, all the theologians, all the other people, trust in the Lord with everything you got, he will make your path clear. And then do it. And you'll be able to testify like Joseph. God, you did work it together for good. And that's where Tracy and I were at when we dropped Christian off in Georgia. I thought it was going to be pretty emotional. It was here last Sunday. A lot of you were crying and all that. I was. But as Tracy and I left, we were like, wow, you worked that together for good. I just have to tell you a quick story and I'll pray. But how did God work it together? Well, my son ended up moving to Atlanta, the other one. He had a dream to be with the Falcons, okay? Next thing you know, that didn't really pan out that great, but he gets married and his wife's down there, and I had to tell you with the wife part because the next thing is they're pregnant. 
That was great news. No, they had just had the baby. Now, the, that was three weeks ago, or just under three weeks. But when they told us at Christmas time this year that, we were, that they were going to move close to home, that was really awesome. But that meant that they had to move all their stuff from down there up here, and that meant driving an extra car and everything. So Christian had to go with us to drive the car back. Guess when their lease was up? May. So we ended up going down there in May to do that. My wife was working with this job with the other ones that were working online. So they had to work and Christian and I were alone. So I said, hey, we're in Atlanta. I want to visit my brother. My brother lives in Columbus. It's about an hour and a half away. I said, I never get to see him. I want to go see him. Tracy says to me, you ought to stop at Impact. They'll give you a Chick-fil-A sandwich. Because Impact, is, Impact 360 was put together by Truett Cathy's daughter. Uh, she's a missionary, but she was a part of the, the, the Chick-fil-A Foundation. So I said, sure, we'll do that. Because my brother is a school teacher and the principal that happens to be 10 minutes away from where Christian is living. Okay? And so all these little coincidences come together. We show up there on the campus, and the lady that meets us, she's a pastor's wife, and she's from a Lancaster area. She graduated from Liberty. I'm a graduate of Liberty. And we were talking about the gospel and how her husband's you know, struggling with ministry, and so she ended up taking this job down there and is explaining the triperspectival approach to me. They used three different words than we use. Know, be, live. Instead of saying, uh, you know, I head, hard hands. Christian, my son, gets out of the car. He's not prepared one bit for this. Not one bit. I don't even think he went on the webpage. He walks in there and he says, hey, that's what my dad teaches. And then we went through and they took us to one of the classes and da-da-da-da. And the rest of the story was uh, his heart was impacted. And so we're driving home from Atlanta. Christian's driving that car. He's following this yellow box called a Penske truck. Because he's driving, he can't look at his phone. He had 11 and a half hours to talk to the Lord about what the future holds. And there we were. This last week, giving him a hug. Do you really see God's fingerprints in your life? Or is God just sending you out there? You're just like the prodigal son going wherever you want to go and try to make the best of it and try to find happiness. I want you to follow God's leading. And when you get to be like Joseph, that's what I felt like, an old guy like Joseph. We left the campus, and we weren't really that sad. Truett, Kathy, or Truett White, the, the, the lady told us that um, when they had four kids and they dropped off their last one, they actually went deep sea fishing. No more mourning. They were happy. <laughs> I'm saying, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening. But when you see God's fingerprints in shaping things, at the same time the world seems to fall apart in the Middle East where the world seems to be collapsing in, in New Orleans again or in Washington, D.C. or even in Dover, the God who can take my son to the right place at the right time because of a suggestion of a Chick-fil-A sandwich given, given by the right person who happened to be there who couldn't go with us. What I'm trying to say is, do you see God's sovereign hand or not? And when you do, rejoice. Lord Jesus, I do pray that when we come to you, that we'll remember the sovereignty of God to bring Jesus to this world at the right moment, in the fullness of time, to offer himself on Calvary's cross. Lord, you had already given us glimpses of this from Genesis 22, where you said you would provide a lamb instead of Isaac's son. Instead of Isaac the son, you would provide your own son, Jesus. 
And so, Lord, we thank you so much for the, for the gospel coming to pass in the fullness of time. You worked it all together for good, that one should be born of a woman who was under the curse of the law, and he would redeem us, and he has. It is finished. Lord, here we are living in the New Testament era. We're living in a fallen world. We're seeing that as people treated Jesus, they'll also treat us. And we see them casting away the cords of Psalm 2. And they're cutting away Christianity from the culture. If it was ever here, at least it was more dominant when they used to say, so help me God. Now they just use God's name in vain. Lord, I pray that as we have opportunity, help us not to despair. Help us not to fall into the quicksand of, of, our, own, um, of our own effort. But help us to realize that through persecution, through trial, through difficulty, through uh, or orchestration, you actually are committed to working it together so that every one of your sheep are brought into the fold. And then we'll hear the trumpet sound. And then we'll have that home going. And so shall we ever be with our Lord. While we tarry, life may be difficult like Joseph felt. But thanks be to God that you work it together for good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand and worship the Lord together this morning. Come to 
with some of the elders today. But uh, one of the applications that I didn't push home is some of you are the brothers. Some of you are the brothers. I've been the brothers in the past. You've not liked the way other people seem to be favored. You feel like you have to do something to balance it out or to step on them. What grace it was for the brothers. They were scared to death to look at their brother when the tables were turned. They knew what it was like to have the power when they could squash Joseph. But now they were about to be squashed, so they thought. In Christ, forgiveness comes to the brothers. If any of you are there or you're still holding grudges, let it go. Take it to the cross. Your families ought to be able to live together and not just survive a meal together because we are the family of God. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that was able to take Joseph on his journey, a very difficult journey, may that grace that brought him through the difficulties to where he was exactly at the right moment of time to be able to set things in order so that Jesus would be called out of Egypt as well. In two occasions, Lord, I thank you that you are the great maestro that works it all together for good. As our hearts have been convicted that sometimes we feel like Joseph being disadvantaged and sometimes we, we act like the brothers who actually bring on grief. Lord, I pray that you will see us through our difficulties as Joseph was to be able to finally see from the helicopter view that God is good. And I pray that we might also be like the older brothers, that we might be able to receive the restoration, that there could be family uh, unity instead of jealousy. Lord, life is never going to be absolutely fair, but family can still be family. Lord, I thank you that you're the Lord of them. You're the Father that we all run to. We pray, O oh Lord, that that grace might be extended as we go forth from this place. We live in a fallen world, and I pray that we will go out not miserable, not, not, uh, not empty, not feeling defeated, but I pray that we might leave this place with the joy of the Lord, knowing that you are placing us in 2021, in August, in the right places, so that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as you love through us, you speak through us, the, your, your kindness is extended through us and your kingdom is advanced using laborers like us. We pray your will to be done on earth, Lord, through us and in us. And all of God's people say amen and hallelujah and Jesus is Lord. God bless you.